as soon as she closes that book, it's going to look like a Rorschach test. It's just going to be a big blob. Unless the paper is super thirsty. Oh, Brianne's thirsty. Welcome back to Shad on TV, Game of Thrones edition, the unofficial podcast companion piece to the juggernaut HBO series, Game of Thrones. I'm one of your hosts, Gene Lyons, and alongside is my co-host, Big D, Dick Ebert. Good evening. And this is our deep dive edition where we look back at this week's episode of Game of Thrones and share our insights, research, and opinions. This week's episode was the series finale, season eight, episode six, titled... The Iron Throne. Big D, we've had 24 hours now to say farewell to Game of Thrones and really digest everything that has happened, hear from the audience, rewatch. And after all that, how do you feel about this episode? So I had a friend text me today and he said, he said, come on, man. He said, did you really like that? And I said to him, I said, I'll be honest. I said, if, if I had watched the finale before I'd seen any of season eight, I, I probably would have been disappointed. I would have been livid. But as the season's gone on, I've found that my expectations have slowly been worn down to where I actually found myself last night enjoying most of the finale. Was it bad? No. But my expectations was a complete disaster. I was picturing Arya deciding to end up with Gendry. I was picturing all the worst case scenarios. So what I got actually turned out to be a pleasant surprise. Now, I normally am the first to say something is terrible. And especially when it comes to TV and especially when it comes to fan service. And yet this season, I seem to be more optimistic and more positive toward the show. And I couldn't figure out why. And as you just mentioned that, I think I cracked it. I started to feel this way in season seven. Mm. All the jetpacking going north of the wall, the polar bear, Gendry running forever, ravens that were traveling at the speed of light. And I was like, this is all horseshit. And so by the time we got to season eight, I'd already accepted it. <laughs> and so for me, I'm just enjoying this farewell to the characters. And again, we should preface this by saying, as we say, it seems at the beginning of every deep dive, we don't think this is perfect, but there is a lot to enjoy. Yeah. And, and both sides of the argument are very passionate and they hear what they want to hear. They pick out the little bits that validate their thoughts. And it, it hit me as I, you know, I came to that realization that I was worn down. I said, these are the five recognized stages of grief and loss. We're all going through them. So the five stages, they're universal, and the experiences, it crosses cultural lines. There is no order in the stages, though. You could hit them in all kinds of different orders. So I think that's what's happening to the fan base. They're all at different levels, right? So now, if we start off with denial and isolation, you know, that's where you're saying, this isn't happening. This, this can't be happening. And denial, it's, it's a common defense mechanism. So that's people saying, I can't believe the show's over. I can't believe the Double Ds fucked this up. I can't believe George didn't write a book. Some people are at that stage. Stage two is anger. Okay, this is where you start to lash out. This is bullshit. And you start yelling at people online. You start tweeting hateful tweets. You start insulting Gene on YouTube. You know, some people are there. Then you work down slowly to bargaining. And this is where you start to justify it and come to some kind of grips of it. And you say, you know what? If we only had four more episodes, damn it. If George had only written The Winds of Winter, you know, if only you know, that we had gotten a couple more hours, this could have been great. 
we all then go into a depression and we finally settle on acceptance. So wherever you are in that line, realize, you know what? It's not perfect. You can't say it's the worst thing on TV. You can't say it's the best thing on TV. So it's got to be somewhere in the middle. And at some point, we'll all get over this and we'll have a big group hug. One of the things we really need to stop doing is justifying our opinions of Game of Thrones based on Rotten Tomato scores, because this is like an echo chamber. People are fed up with the show, so they'll go rate it poorly. And then other people will say, clearly, I'm right about it being a shitty show. Look at the Rotten Tomato score. I don't know if I pointed this out on the podcast before, but the Rotten Tomato score for episode five was something like 46%. It was like the worst episode of Game of Thrones to date. The final episode of American Gods was at 88% fresh. (laughs) The King B and I covered that episode of American Gods. I had to go to the internet to figure out what the hell was happening on American Gods. It was a shit show. You cannot tell me that this is a below average television show, even at its worst. No, there's no way. And I think, you know, some of the worst finales. I know we're going to get a couple listeners who love Lost and we've gone through this before. (laughs) I liked it. You liked the finale? I did. Here's the problem. They betrayed the trust that they had built up with the audience. We were promised there was an explanation. This wasn't an otherworldly existential experience. And in the end, that's what we got. So that sucked because we were built a house of lies. This, come on, people. It's not that bad. Well, people have talked about this show feeling rushed, especially in season eight. And I don't think there's a single viewer, except maybe Remy, who said the entire season was perfect, that argues against the fact that things have been a bit sped up. But episode six really encapsulated all my feelings on this final season. There were good ideas. There were wise intentions. And those things didn't disappoint me. But there was so much room for improvement. It was like... It was like watching an athlete who's still a star, still better than everybody else on the field, but not what she once was. And episode six itself had all the components of a great show, maybe even in a great season. But even if you stretch it out to an entire season, I think it would still feel fast paced. Compressing it caused us to miss some important scenes that I think would have justified characters actions. It is incomprehensible to me that we did not see John confess to Daenerys' killing. If he had just had a chance to explain himself, have some kind of monologue, there would have been a climax of the series. It would have been a fitting bookend to Ned's stubborn honesty that got him killed in the beginning. And then it would explain, how did the Unsullies not kill him? They were just slitting Lannister throats in the street. How did he survive that? Give us that 10 minutes. It would have been so much better. I sat down and dreamed up a season nine, and here's how it goes. We end (laughs) season eight at episode five, a very, very short season, and then season nine happens. And I'm not adding anything or changing the course of events, but check this out. Let's say we do season nine, episode one. It's called Bring Out Your Dead. You see Tyrion, he's touring a broken King's Landing, and he discovers Jaime's body and Cersei's body. And meanwhile, Daenerys and Grey Worm and the Dothraki are discussing their plans for conquest. So we get an idea of where she actually wants to go with things. We understand her intent. And perhaps during that, Daenerys unveils some sort of Magna Carta or a Targaryen code so we know what life would be like in Westeros underneath her rule. 
She comes out, she addresses her people, as we saw in this episode, and we see the reactions from the actual people of King's Landing, who we saw none of in this episode. It's like everybody disappeared. I don't know if they're all dead. Then Tyrion and John, having seen that carnage on a personal level of seeing people getting their throats slit, and at a civic level, seeing what has been done to the city, they meet Cersei on the steps of the Red Keep out in public, and Tyrion then publicly resigns and is arrested. Nothing has changed about the storyline, but we at least get where everything is going. Yeah, I think that was one of your complaints in the Instacast. You said, you know what, Daenerys didn't even have a chance. We don't know what kind of leader she could have been. In your breakdown here, you're giving her time to show us. All right, then we go to episode two, titled, You Used to Call Me on My Cell. This is Jon visiting Tyrion in prison. It's a smaller episode. They discuss treason. They have their heartfelt goodbyes. We really get to see these characters connect, which I think episode six actually did a really good job of. We also get to see the word of Daenerys' victory spreading across the Seven Kingdoms, and we see how each house reacts to this new queen, which prepare for war, which are ready to bend the knee, and you get an idea of who this leadership is in Westeros going forward. We don't need to know where everything goes, but at least know the way they're going to approach it. And then from there, we get episode three, The Queen Slayer. Here, Daenerys acquaints herself with the Red Keep. She connects with her Targaryen roots. I want to see her explore this space, see what she's done to it, see her reaction to the destruction of the Red Keep of King's Landing, and in her mind, build her confidence that her path is just and destined. So we get to see her side of things, right? Then Jon confronts her in the throne room, as we saw in episode six, Meanwhile, Tyrion is still in prison and he's reflecting on his life and he's tormented by his decisions. We get to see that inner conflict. Tyrion isn't just some high and mighty condescending figure, but rather he is a man who is tormented by the decisions that he's made. The Dothraki and the Unsullied, meanwhile, are continuing their persecution at King's Landing. I want to see what these people would be like left in these rules. You know, the Dothraki, can they be police officers? The Unsullied, what do they do? as they see the results of their war on King's Landing. Yeah, I think there's also the quick conversation that we could, you know, insert into this episode between John and Tyrion in the cell, where Tyrion says, he says, everywhere Daenerys goes, evil men died, and we cheered for her, and her strength and power grew, and she became more sure that what she was doing was good and right. I wanted to see John and Tyrion come to the realization they enabled her. They led her to this path by cheering her on early on and not actually trying to to show her and teach her how to be a good leader, they own part of the responsibility for all the dead. And from there, we would see them make the decision. We still don't know which way it's going to go. John goes in. He slays Daenerys just as he did. We're not changing that. Drogon destroys the Iron Throne, as he did, and flies away with his mother's corpse. Fine with all that. Then we get to see Big D what you talked about. John emerges from the Red Keep and he surrenders himself for judgment. One key thing that we never got to see in this episode is he kills her. Now he's in prison. What the hell happened? That might be the most vital part of the episode. Exactly. That should have been the most powerful moment. Grey Worm comes in. They find him. And by the way, who the hell is posted guard on on Daenerys? Drogon. (laughs) Yeah. What about the Unsullied in the hall? They didn't hear a dragon. They didn't feel the heat, the screaming that you didn't hear that. And you come running in. And then John, you know that as soon as somebody walked into guard, he's like, I did it. 
He didn't even try to play dumb. At least show us that. Make it understandable why he did it. He gets all the way down the hallway. We think he's clear. He turns around. I did it. I'm sorry. So after that, we get episode four, House Arrest. This is where now John finds himself in prison, and we see the unsullied reaction. I wanted Grey Worm to have a little more time to process all of this and also to see the Dothraki, the unsullied. How do they feel about all this happening? Humanize them a bit. Ravens are sent north. And as they get there, Sansa prepares a force to march south for the open throne. In this case, you've got Jon Snow. He's being held captive. You're telling me that Arya, who's in King's Landing, Sansa, and the rest of the North aren't going to have some reaction to him being imprisoned? Meanwhile, the Unsullied and the Dothraki prepare to defend the city, but they decide to allow for a tribunal to settle the fate of Westeros because they just decide they don't wish to rule it. Jon of course, laments his decision to kill Daenerys and is tortured by her memory. This is another thing that I didn't get from this is he loves this woman or allegedly loves this woman. And part of the reason that we don't buy into this romance between the two of them is we don't see indications of it. And here he kills her. And by the end of episode six, everything seems hunky dory in his life. Yeah. And, and that that question between, you know, how do the Unsully handle it? How does Sansa handle it? That's boiled down to one line at the beginning of the dragon pit conversation and you know, the Westeros King's boot. Grey Worm says something like, we should behead him here. We should kill Jon Snow. And Sansa says, well, we have uh, thousands of northern men outside the gates who think that's a bad idea. Show us that. Show us that you know, growing tension. I'm glad you brought that up because then we get episode five, Banner Manorama. This is when the lords from all the kingdoms gather for Tyrion's trial and it, the armies are outside and they're awaiting the outcome. There's this tension there, right? The decision that they make is life or death for pretty much everybody at King's Landing. And you're left as an audience wondering, like, what what the hell is going to happen? Now, we know the armies are there. Again, we're not changing that. That's in episode six. We just don't see it. Then you get a balanced argument pitting the threat of Daenerys' power lust against the cowardice of stabbing your lover in the chest, right? Show us that there is not necessarily an equivocation, but there's both sides of the story. I mean, she was embracing John, and he fucking killed her. Yeah, and, and upon second viewing, what struck me was this was a moment of elation for her. This was joy. There was a release. That cold Daenerys out giving her her war speech. She's now talking about when I was a little girl and couldn't count to 20. This is what it meant to be. And she's happy and she's excited about the future because she believes what she's doing is just and right. She's going to build that utopia. And in that smile, that happiness, that's when John sticks the dagger in. And I think that, that impact was fantastic. It was great. Giving this entire exchange space to breathe allows us to really decide how to feel about it and lets it hit us emotionally. Because unfortunately, I knew this was a sad scene with Daenerys being killed, but I didn't feel anything about it. And I really, really should have. From there, I think we'd meet the new lords of the Seven Kingdoms and start to understand how each would rule. This would give us an idea. Is this going to be a circle as it always was? Is the wheel broken or not? In this debate between all of them at the King's Moot, we see Grey Worm perhaps disgusted by this bickering and this dissent, and he realizes he wants nothing to do with the matters of this continent. He condemns them all. He's fed up with it. And then in the aftermath, Bran is chosen as the new king. Again, not changing anything, just changing the way it's presented, stretching it out. I'm very proud of you writing this fan fiction. This is definitely a change for you. You normally, you'd flip out if I came up with something like this. Now, Big D, you know this isn't fan fiction. This is just me spreading out 
what the double D's already laid out for us. Oh, okay. Can I make a request then that we could mix in these 10 episodes? Can we recruit some builders, some people to actually rebuild <laughs> the city? Can we also get some inspectors? Because Daenerys and Tyrion, they feel comfortable going up into the Red Keep in the throne room. There's been some substantial damage. I don't think that building is secure. It's safe. Uh, I want to get some men in there and see the city being rebuilt. And then also to see what it would take to get the actual citizens to return. Like, how do you do that? Come on, guys, come back. Daenerys is not going to burn you again. We're under new management. Come on back. Pay no attention to that giant black Targaryen banner hanging off the Red Keep. Not not intimidating at all. Well, Big D, you know, I only came up with nine episodes, so you just wrote the 10th one. So you're the one doing the fan fiction now. I was sticking to the story. Yeah, it's, it's titled Bob the Builder. Episode six, we get Unhappy Trails. This is where the disgruntled parties depart and begin scheming. This I would really like to see. Everybody leaves the King's Moon and immediately. It's the it's how am I going to get in power? How are we going to overthrow Bran? And the implication there is that civil war is all but inevitable. Unsullied sail for Noth, as they do in episode six. But the Dothraki actually get to be on camera. I want to see the Dothraki stripping King's Landing of all its riches and being like, we're out of here. <laughs> they depart in a wave of blood and outrage. Bran calmly observes all this, unmoved by the passions of common men, and then focuses on the rebuilding. And then we get the Bob the Builder episode. Uh, from there, episode seven, the smaller council. Here we see what was perhaps one of the best parts of episode six was the new council, but we get to see more of it. It's not a comedic thing, but rather an actual strategic thing. They're discussing rebuilding. They're seeing how their experiences unite them. So many of them fought together at the long night. So many of them have long histories with each other. You start to see new alliances form across the kingdoms. Truths are surfaced that set the record straight about John, Jamie, Cersei, and the secrets of the realm. We get a, a, a new starting point, and the history is set straight. From there, we expand that entire Stark montage into an episode of its own. So episode eight, The Wolf That Mounts the World. We get all the Stark narratives ending, and we see each remaining Stark set out on his or her adventure. So we learn more of Arya's intent and her crew. Like, she's just an explorer now? What's that all about? I'd like to know more about that. Sansa explaining the terms of Northern Independence, going back to the North, talking to her bannermen, telling what the hell happened down there. And then she maybe visits what's left of the crypts and the godswood to pay homage to Ned and Catelyn and the other Starks to sacrifice for this outcome. That, I think, would have a massive emotional punch. And I'd also like to see if what Tyrion holds to be true is actually is accurate. That he says there's nothing more powerful than a good story. I would like to see the story of Bran the Broken, the story of the Long Night, the story of Ice and Fire start to spread throughout the realm and to see how people react to it and to see how life goes on. Because so much of the series was basic things in life, people going around their normal daily lives. And I think we've lost that interaction that wasn't directly tied to some giant plot point or some kind of action scene. See, guys, we don't need a petition to remake season eight. Just let us make you a season nine. Send your money to hosts at shadowtv.com. If we get enough together, I think HBO will take it seriously. And finally, the coda, episode nine, the call of the mild. This is when John and Tormund return the wildlings north of the wall to live in peace and prosperity. And... Perhaps they pass the remnants of the bloody battles that they survived against the Night King. And there's, as Big D says, a look back at the legacy and the legend that is left behind by all the things these people did. And maybe, maybe at the end, farther north, we see a new threat looming. Something's going on in the ice out there. 
and we leave it at that because I just like that kind of ending. If you liked it, great. If you didn't, I'm sorry. We'll move along. But before we do, Big D and I would love to do a special edition of Shad on TV where we read your rewrites to Game of Thrones. So if you could send your rewrites in for a special edition, give us 500 words or fewer rewriting a scene, an episode, or a season that you think could have been improved. We'd love to see that and read it on the podcast. It doesn't have to stick to the storyline. You can make it the best story you can. We've already got about five or six of these in, but I'd love to see more. And I know that we have such an incredible and creative audience that we can get some really good shit and possibly some really bizarre tinfoil. Yeah. And if I can recommend people get creative, have some fun. Remember, after this, until we get maybe a prequel, this is it. Your Game of Thrones fix has got to be satiated right here. So uh, so get it out of your system. Let's go. Just get it all out. So getting back to the real show, uh, episode six, season eight, Game of Thrones, the finale, it worked in two different parts. We had part one, which was the overthrow of Daenerys and John having to make that decision. Part two was moving into the future and who was going to lead. And the big question was, who would sit as king? And we found out it was Bran. A lot of memes have come out. A lot of tweets have come out. People seem fairly disgruntled with this choice. I haven't seen a lot of positivity about it. And so that begs the question, was Bran the right choice for the throne? Yeah. So what I want to do is I I had a debate again with another friend today about whether Bran was the appropriate choice. So I want to give the argument because he's like, you know what? You can just state facts however you want them and twist them and make it seem like you're right. So what I'm going to do here is I'm just going to state the facts, characteristics that Bran have that is either good or bad for the realm. And then we can decide in the end whether or not it was the right choice. Davos makes it clear in the beginning that we have to find a better way. We've been killing each other for thousands of years. We're not getting anywhere. So let's develop some kind of a new system that can work. Thankfully, they laugh Sam out of the building and say, get out of here. But for a show that frequently focus on society's uh, habit to forget its history and that they're doomed to repeat it, it's a big reoccurring cycle. Bran offers for the first time for the realm to have a ruler that can learn from the past because he knows everything. Bran is physically broken. Uh, and in a tale in which pride and ego can lead to travesty, Bran is neither. So, so here's something that works in Bran's favor, succession. Bran, because of his injury, cannot father any lunatic children like Joffrey. So because he has no lineage, no pa- nobody to pass on the throne to, it will continue on the cycle of the king's mute. And it would ensure that the next leader is also elected in the same way he was. First of all, Sansa has now demonstrated twice that she cannot keep a secret. She tells about John's lineage. And here, out of nowhere, she's like, by the way, Bran can't fuck. Like, he didn't, nobody needed to know that. That's not cool. Well, maybe she's getting him back for that comment when he said, you looked beautiful that night. Her marriage to Ramsay. <laughs> Fucking creep. Uh, that was a private moment. She shouldn't have said that. No, I'm calling him a creep. Not you. Well, we're both probably creeps. So so next is Bran's special superpower, his green sight. Okay. On the good side, Bran has access to everything that has ever happened in the world of men and everything that will ever happen. So having a king that can see to the future, it's beneficial. But having a king who can see and experience the past, this might be the best reason why Bran the Broken could be protector of the realm. So as the saying goes, those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Brand doesn't just have the ability to learn from history. He has the ability to experience it personally. 
That means he mostly lives in the past, according to Bran. But it also gives him the wisdom that no other man or woman on Earth can match. So that's a good thing. He can guarantee he's not going to make the same mistakes that other people have before him. And he can also play things out like a simulator and see how they would work out. That's a good thing. But how could that be bad? So Bran seems in this season to only be sharing information when it benefits him. So one response that you might have is that because he gives information when it's needed. But this is Bran's response to pretty much everything, which makes it essentially meaningless. Bran didn't even bother to inform Daenerys or Jon that Euron was planning to ambush Daenerys as they approached King's Landing. That might have helped not lead to King's Landing being burned to the ground. And for someone who sees everything, to be holding that information back that could be helpful, it doesn't just seem self-serving, but it seems very intentional. I think he's demonstrated that he's willing to take a stand when it's something like the Night King willing to destroy all of humanity, but he's not going to take sides and feuds between houses or anything like that. And if you do want a king who's impartial, who doesn't curry favor, this is exactly the guy you want. But I agree, Big D. It seems like we're going from one queen who had a supernatural ability in a dragon to now a king who has a supernatural ability in green sight. Who's to say that that's not a power that's going to be abused? You just said that he doesn't want to get involved in, in you know things between houses. Didn't he find it utterly important to have Sam tell John his true parentage, his true lineage in the middle of preparing for the battle with the dead? I think he has time for it when it's convenient. To be fair, though, he's not the one who told Arya and Sansa. John told him to tell them. And he was like, all right, if you want me to. Okay, this is like the phone game. He didn't have to tell Sam to tell John. Then John had to decide whether or not you tell Sansa and Arya and then told Varys and Tyrion. The phone game started with Bran. He didn't have to say anything. So next thing, next characteristic. Bran is disconnected. Bran has the ability to disassociate from the world around him. Uh, and that could make him an objective and fair leader, which sometimes Westeros desperately needs, especially after the chaos and bloodshed of a, a Song of Ice and Fire. But being disconnected could also be a bad thing. Bran in the first few episodes was very weird, and people made fun of him that he would just sit there, he'd say a few cryptic lines. So Bran's lack of human compassion that would make him an effective leader, this also is a major problem for him. He can't empathize with any human being. All of his subjects, he cannot identify or have any kind of compassion or empathy because that's just not in him. He's he's more three-eyed raven than he is man. Bran definitely is positioned to be the first libertarian king of the six kingdoms. He's going to be a very laissez-faire economics kind of guy. He's going to be like, listen, you know, the invisible hand is going to move all things. If everyone acts in their own best interest, everything's going to be fine. You're going to have Hooverville springing up all over Westeros. It's going to be a mess. But a leader does need to be compassionate, if not passionate. And in this case, Bran could be very uh, dangerous. We've seen so many times in this season that there were times that he really could have helped people out. But his detachment from everything left people in peril that didn't necessarily need to be. I'd like to, to call back to two specific events and how Bran chose to react to them. It tells you his cold heart. Do you remember when he inadvertently caused young Willis to turn into Hodor? Did he ever show any remorse? Hodor, man, I'm sorry. I'm really upset. He doesn't want show even a glimmer that he feels bad for what happened. And then in the finale, as John's leaving to go take the black, John says, I'm sorry I wasn't there for you. He can't even pretend to say that he's that he's his brother anymore, that there's any compassion, any love to say, John, thank you very much. Thank you for everything you've done. Hug him. 
He just sits there and says, everything you did got you here. No hug, nothing. Imagine that as a leader. What kind of speeches is he going to give to rally the troops? He's not going to win hearts and minds with that. Well, that's why he's got a small council. He's going to let Tyrion do it all. He's going to be off trying to warg into dragons and shit. Yeah, definitely searching for Drogon. So the next one that I think is a strength for Bran is that he lacks human flaws. So if we look back at all the rulers that Westeros has had, they all share one major fault. They are ordinary men and women who have ordinary men and women's problems. They're prone to make the same mistakes. That extremely human quality, unfortunately, has made for weak rulers who are just distracted and leads to their eventual uh, downfall. So you have Ares Targaryen. He was paranoid. We have Rhaegar Targaryen, who wanted Lyanna. You have Robert Baratheon, who wanted sex and hunting more than ruling. And also Lyanna. And also Lyanna, true. And then you had Rob Stark, who chose to marry a woman for love over the woman that would have helped him win the war. Then you have Joffrey, who's just interested in getting joy out of torturing people for his personal delight than being king. So these human flaws, Bran should be substantially removed from. He shouldn't have these flaws. But that isn't just a good thing. It could also be a bad thing. So as a three-eyed raven who is now exempt from these human flaws, he also has the potential to live for over a thousand years, which the previous three-eyed raven had promised. He said, I'm well over a thousand years old. So how does that help the Westeros Kings mute? When do they plan on holding elections? Every thousand years? Wouldn't an eternal king kind of defeat the purpose of having smooth and regular elections and transition of power? Well, considering very few kingdoms and dynasties last a thousand years anyway, it'd be about right time for for change at that point. I, I think that that's, uh, that's fine. But yes, I would be surprised if Bran naturally lives a thousand years as opposed to somebody cutting that life very short. This is the six kingdoms after all. So one of the major reasons that Tyrion cites as... Uh, justification for picking Bran is that he makes a great story and there's nothing more powerful than a good story, which I could disagree with. I think there's nothing more powerful than a dragon (laughs) or three dragons. Those work better than stories. Or Cersei would say there's nothing more powerful than power. Yes, very true. So Bran's story about a boy falling out of a tower, the boy endures pain, recovery, Uh, The boy mind melds with a mystical figure and gives him access to the whole history of humanity. That's a good story. But I got to say, I think Bran the Broken, it's not more impressive than Arya, the hero of Winterfell, the girl who watched her father executed, who fled across the narrow sea, trained as a faceless assassin, and then killed the Night King. That is a better story. So I don't think that Bran is making for the best candidate here. But we're getting to the last category, and I think... This is where it raises some potential danger. And I mentioned on the Instacast that I thought Bran could be somehow artificially manipulating how things are working out or using his knowledge that would eventually end up in where we find ourselves at the end of the finale. So the first time that anyone even thinks of the ridiculous idea of putting Bran on the throne was a conversation that he had with Tyrion about now being the three-eyed raven and that he doesn't want anymore. So this lack of desire is what leads Tyrion to think, who would make a better leader than someone who doesn't want to lead? And Bran didn't even want to be as the last trueborn son of Ned Stark. He didn't want to even rule Winterfell. So he thinks that this is the perfect person to put in. But I tend to believe that Bran's claims that he did not want the throne 
are not too genuine. If you break down what happens in this episode, I think anyone should question Brand's intention or whether he really had a lack of desire. So he claims, I don't want titles. I'm above that. I can't focus on minor personal struggles and titles and circumstances. This is what he tells Tyrion, right? But when Tyrion asks him to be king, he replies, why do you think I came all this way? He came because he knew Tyrion would offer him to become king. He knew all along he wanted it. He knew exactly what would happen. And I think he orchestrated this entire situation to gain power that he strongly denied wanting. He even came prepared to nominate Tyrion as his hand. How is this like a shocking suggestion? It's like at the Oscars when the actor walks up and he's like, oh, my God, I'm, I can't believe I won. And then pulls the envelope out of his jacket. Yeah. I'd like to thank. Uh, but I don't know. I mean, just because Bran is there and understands that this is his duty doesn't mean that he wants the job. As they said in this episode, duty is the death of love. Bran doesn't feel anymore, but he understands that this is his duty. So he's free from want. He doesn't want to be king. He knows that he has to be king. He's seen it. So I can see that. Again, that's putting a lot of faith in one character, and I hope that Bran doesn't disappoint us. But there's nothing that we've seen in any season of this show, from the time that he was a child and was crippled to near death until this point, that implies that he has some selfish desire. So anything that might go wrong with Bran seems more like one of the reasons that you've already outlined. The things that make him inhuman might make him a liability. So I want to uh, then refer to a, an email that we got today from one of our listeners, Matt B., and it was titled Bran the Manipulator. So since I can't have my crazy tinfoil theories, Gene, I think I'm going to let Matt B. get his in here quickly. Uh, so Matt B. said, hey, guys, I want to talk about Bran. Despite his seemingly innocent exterior, Bran is the true mad king of the series, and I'll explain why. Everything that happened, the things that made the characters who they are and put them exactly where they needed to be, was known to Bran in advance. Theon's years of torture led him to the guarding of Bran on the day of the Night King. Arya's isolation in Essos sculpted her to Bran's personal Night King assassin. He even gave her the knife to do it. Sansa's years of emotional and physical abuse that Bran watched from the sidelines, you looked beautiful that day, as creepy as he said it, etc., etc. I could list for hours examples. He made no effort to use his power for good, only self-promotion. Bran pulled the strings and pushed the buttons to encourage all of this destruction. He knew that Daenerys would burn King's Landing, and he made sure of it. He intentionally told Jon Snow that his Targaryen heritage to force the divide between Jon and Danny. He knew that this drama would no doubt put in her mind and what it would lead to. He needed King's Landing to burn so that the throne would be empty for him. On top of that, he further secures his seat on the throne by exiling the only known heir to the throne by sending John Targaryen Snow to the wall. Did it make sense to banish John just to keep Grey Worm happy? Absolutely not. Bran did it so that there would be zero other options for the people. All those deaths, all those destruction, everything that happened, it was all part of Bran's master plan. He knew what the future held and allowed years of suffering even within his own family so that he could selfishly become king. It was all preventable, so this blood is on Bran's hands. And that came from Matt B. Okay, before the Bran base tear out their headphones and start punching the speakers in their cars, I want to speak for them and also people who read the books. Bran 
suffers greatly throughout all of this. He's not some conniving little sneak. He's not Kaiser Soze. He's not tapping his feet in the wheelchair. This kid was nearly killed. He has lost the use of his lower extremities. He had to endure being carried around by Hodor while everyone made fun of him. All the other phrase and all the other kids making fun of him. All he wanted in life was to be a knight, and that was taken away from him. He had to sit there with a boring old maester, learning about boring old shit when he wanted to be a kid. He has nightmares every night about the Three-Eyed Raven visiting him, pecking at him. He's flying, and he's falling, and falling, and falling all the time. Nightmares about Jamie Lannister. He uncontrollably wargs into wolves and has to figure that out as a child. So this poor kid... Goes through all that, and then he's being hunted down by the fucking Night King, and all you guys have to say is that he's the manipulator? I'm not buying it. I didn't even realize he was bullied as a child. That just adds another one, another reason for him to do this. Beyond all the theoretical, let's get down to some concrete stuff. Uh, another listener, Annie, in Rybrook, New York, uh, wrote in to ask who all the people were at that gathering that chose Bran as the king, or the king's moot. Now, if you're not familiar with the term king's moot, that's the method by which the Iron Islands choose their king. So instead of uh, having an heir to the throne and just having natural succession, uh, instead, all the available captains of the longships from the various islands uh, come together and they, they choose their king. So at this king's moot, if you go to it on your screen, freeze frame, uh, I'll go left to right to explain everybody who's there and kind of what their significance is and why they're there. And we'll start off with one that everybody seems to know is, is Sam Tarley. Um, he's there all the way on the left. And it's actually interesting because although we know it's Sam Tarly, it's kind of confusing as to why he's there. On one hand, he could be representing House Tarly, but the Tarleys are extinct and he shouldn't have a claim to the house because he was basically forsaken. So he could be there actually representing the Citadel uh, as a representative of the Maesters, but either option is possible. He's also there to bring plastic water bottles to Westeros. Now, where it gets interesting is right next to Sam. There's a guy sitting next to him we haven't seen before. Everybody's curious as to who this guy is. Now, there's no confirmation from the show. Nobody said it's definite. But one guy that we haven't seen as an adult is Howland Reed. And a lot of people thought that he was going to show up at Winterfell or at some other part of this series. Howland Reed is the only remaining person who knows John's true lineage, right? He was, he was there at the Tower of Joy. Now, Howland Reed, if you don't recall, he's the guy that killed Sir Arthur Dane, saved Ned Stark's life, and we've never seen him grown up, but we did see his children, Jojen and Mira, who defended Bran, and I'm surprised of all the people they brought, like, if that is Howland Reed, why he wouldn't have brought Mira with him, so that might indicate that that's not Howland Reed, but his armor seems to suggest that he might be a Kranigman. He's got that green leather, which would make sense. His people are from the swamps, they eat frogs, lots of green stuff. So I am actually hoping that is Helen Reed, because if not, then we've got like three or four guys up here who are basically nobodies in the show. You can't bring Mira, okay? Because it's already a collection of our favorite characters throughout history. You know, you could be like, why is Sir Davos there? What the fuck is he doing? He even jokingly says, I don't think I have a vote, bringing attention to the fact that he shouldn't be there. I think bringing your kids to this meeting would have even been a step too far. To bring your kids to Kingsmoot Day? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so next to the mystery man is Edmure Tully. Again, this uh, was Cat Stark's brother. He married into the Frey family at the Red Wedding, and then he was like basically a prisoner for most of the show. Uh, he's now the Lord of River Run and the Lord Paramount of the Trident. 
And he is the uncle to the remaining Stark children. That's why Sansa says, you know, sit down, uncle. He's the one who notably nominates himself as king and then gets shot down. He's kind of a comedic figure in the show. He's also pathetic as a human being. If you remember when the Lannisters laid siege to River Run, Jamie marches out Edmure and tries to get him to convince the Blackfish to open the gates and to willingly give up the castle. Uh, he goes inside there and you can see he's got no spine. Did he actually think this was going to work? I mean, has he been out of the game that long? Yeah, I thought when he got up, he was going to nominate one of the Stark children. I think that's what was intended by the show. And then he turns around and begins to start nominating himself. Well, I'm no stranger to statescraft and all that stuff. Uh, that was a classic scene with uh, with Sansa shutting him down. A real power move, sure to make memes across the land. Next up, we had the Starks, of course. You know them, Sansa, Arya, and Bran. And then, Big D, as you mentioned, we have Sir Brienne of Tarth and Sir Davos Seaworth. And I don't know why they're there. Other than their major characters, because they're not lords. Why is Arya there? Well, Arya is there as a Stark because I believe that she is like the security for Sansa. Hold on. Why is security voting then? You would have had Sansa as the Lady of Winterfell there representing the Starks. Why is Arya there? Because John would? Because if she wasn't fans, they could say, hey, where's Arya? And then you have to explain that she's not a lady. She actually literally said, I'm not a lady, uh, which brings us to Gendry. So Gendry is sitting next to Sir Davos. He has now been legitimized, so he's Lord of Storm's End and Lord Paramount of the Stormlands. Again, remember, Daenerys legitimized Gendry as Robert Baratheon's heir conveniently before she was killed uh, and granted him Storm's End. So he does have a vote in all this. Unfortunately, he doesn't have much of a line in all this and zero connection with Arya. Thank goodness there was no, like, stare. There was no look at each other. You know, like, Gendry's kind of like, is there a chance? And she just shoots him down again. The, they stayed away from that. Fans write in, was he looking at her stomach? Is she pregnant? <laughs> no. Uh, then we had two like rando dudes. Yet another guy, I'm calling him Northern Lord number three, because I think that's probably the extent of his acting credits. And now I'm starting to get really curious about these guys, because they've all seemed to have like Northern apparel on. So I'm like, is the North just stacking the deck here? But anyway, there's that guy. Then there's a guy next to him that I'm calling Northern Lord number four. So this guy, TheVerge.com, is guessing might be the new Lord of the Dreadfort. So he'd be taking over after the Boltons. Uh, he definitely has the look for it. Then finally, we get a familiar face. It's Yara Greyjoy. Now, Yara has a seat at this uh, King's Moot. She is now the Lord Reaper of Pike. So that makes her the ruler of the Iron Islands, which she took back from Euron Greyjoy earlier this season. Could have been another episode, but whatever. So Yara's there. Very subdued, Yara. And then we get... <laughs> House Martell, they really wanted you to know that this was House Martell, that, that Dorne was being represented. That could have been one of the previous Dorne stunt doubles. I had to stop for a second. I was like, is that? Oh, that's somebody new. Not that all the Dornish look alike. You know, I don't want to go there, but they do kind of look alike. Well, he's got like, he looks like he's wearing like a 70s couch for a robe. The Dornish all seem to have this like lackadaisical, like he's just kind of slumped in his chair. I'm like, this is a really important moment, Dornish prince or lord or whoever you are. Yeah, they, they've been hitting the hookah. Then we get to, for me, the heartthrob of the group. You know, you think you have Gendry, he's looking good. Robin Aaron comes out of fucking nowhere, right? He's one of the most despised characters. He's up there with Joffrey. I wanted him out the moon door. He was awkward. He was just, he was embarrassing. Littlefinger just used to, you know, remember him out there with the bow and arrow trying to shoot? It was pathetic. Whatever the hell he's doing, he looks good. It reminded me of Harry Potter. Uh, that actor, uh, I think it's Matthew Lewis. He plays Neville Longbottom. He also 
developed quite well. So Robin Aaron, good for you, man. You know he begged to get on the show again because everybody kept thinking, you're not the kid from Game of Thrones. No, you're not the game. That's the same kid? Yes, that's him. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So Robin Aaron, to refresh your memories, everybody, he's Lord of the Vale, Warden of the East. What's interesting about him is now, after all this churn and death and bloodshed, he is now technically the longest ruling lord of a great house in all of Westeros. Little Robin Aaron, John Aaron's kid. So he inherited his seat as a child after his father was murdered prior to Game of Thrones even beginning. And that's what put everything in motion, causing Robert Baratheon to have Ned replace John as the hand. And he's grown up a lot since the start of the show. Uh, maybe breastfeeding until somebody six or seven years old is the way to go. We, you know, we had some awkward humor in the scene. Would it have been too much to ask for Tyrion to make a joke about, hey, thanks for not throwing me out the moon door? I, I think Tyrion was already on thin ice as this scene began. I don't think he was making any more jokes. Immediately to the right of Robin Aaron, uh, we had Jan Royce. Now, Jan Royce is bannerman advisor uh, of Robert Aaron and the head of House Royce. So he's really been running uh, the show for Robin and holds considerable sway in the Vale. Uh, and therefore is one of the more powerful uh, lords in Westeros. And then finally, all the way on the right, uh, we have like this chubby older guy who, again, we don't know. The thought is that he's representing the Reach. Uh, Vanity Fair said he he's probably there representing the Reach. Uh, I'm not so sure. I think it's actually just somebody in the cast, dad, or like one of George Martin's buddies that's just hanging out. He's just kind of a chubby guy with a sword, just chilling. So anyway, that's everybody at the King's Moot. I hope that helps, Annie. And I didn't want to glance over the Starks. I just wanted to save them for a separate segment, which is the goodbyes in this episode. It's really what the episode focused on. So as Big D said in the Instacast, this episode felt like it went a little bit longer than it needed to. And part of that was these goodbyes that we had with everybody, some of them being more satisfying than others. And I wanted to start with Sansa. Sansa was by far my favorite farewell. This is the one that felt the realest to me and the best to me, the most inspirational and really captured the essence of what was going on. It felt like the ending I wanted to see. It wasn't cutesy, but it wasn't gloomy. Sansa restored Winterfell to power and she brought prestige back to the North that it hadn't seen in centuries since the North agreed to bend the knee to the king in the South. Now, Sansa appears to be steadfast and a driven leader and at first, I wondered at this king's moot why she wouldn't want the North as one of the seven kingdoms, considering Bran is the king and could be for a thousand years. But I think Sansa is showing her wisdom here. She's wise enough to think beyond Bran, who has no heir, and wonder if the next king comes along and decides that it doesn't want the North to be independent, what will she do? During my first watch, I was like, why the hell would they agree to this? Not only is it the king's sister... But it's ridiculous. Why then doesn't Yara turn around and say, guess what? The Iron Islands, we want independence too. Dorne, we want it too. But Sansa makes a good argument that I only caught the second time through. She says, the North bore the brunt of the attack of the dead more than anyone else. They suffered more losses, more casualties. The North is almost a buffer between what's up, where used to be behind the wall, and because they had suffered so much, she said, our people can't be expected to bend the knee. So it was it was at least explained in a way that I think could be rationally uh, accepted by the other members. And Yara is not going to say, well, the Iron Islanders, we suffered too. But I don't think it's long before everybody starts playing the game again and starts you know, jockeying for their own independence. I think they've set a bad precedent, but uh, good for Sansa. It helps Sansa that her brother is the king. 
She's like, we're independent. He's like, okay, sucks to be you guys. Arya, on the other hand, was a little perplexing. I didn't see this turn for her. I love the way that they shot it with her aboard the ship with her little spyglass and needle going into the sheath and strolling the deck of the ship. I thought that was really cool. But I thought Arya would go a different way. I thought perhaps she would owe a debt to the faceless men and say, this is my path that I have to follow. Or maybe she would do what she does best and be this killer that wipes bad men off the board. She's like dark man. She's just out there. Whenever somebody is acting a fool, she might pop up at any second and take you out. Perhaps we were meant to understand that that chapter closed when she said goodbye to the hound at King's Landing, that she made a choice between life and death, and she chose life, even if it's a life she isn't particularly skilled at living. I guess beyond all that, though, at least she didn't marry Gendry, which would have been a complete violation of that character. I'll admit, when I saw John north of the wall with Tormund, I smiled. I hugged my pillow when he nuzzled Ghost. And Jon Snow is as good a hero as you'll ever get. But this story, Game of Thrones, in its entirety, is so much more powerful and bittersweet and eternal if Jon dies for taking Daenerys' life. And I don't want to do a rewrite. I know that's your guys' jobs. Write in, host at ShoutOnTV.com. But Jon gave Daenerys no chance. He gave her no trial. He didn't challenge her to battle. It doesn't mean he did the wrong thing, but the stark sense of justice would demand that John's life be given for the life he took. And everything that was won when Daenerys lost would mean so much more if he had to make that sacrifice. He was already living on borrowed time. He should already be dead. And I never want to tell a storyteller how to finish a story, but Daenerys' death to me feels more significant and their love feels more real if Jon can't live with the guilt of what he did. Plus, there's no fucking way the Unsullied don't execute him right on the spot. Uh, there's no way. And also, what did they give up to the Unsullied, to the Dothraki? How does this seem like an equitable deal? They deserve some skin in the game. And it wouldn't have been unreasonable to say, you know what? Jon's going to pay the ultimate price and to have the entire Kingsmute agree to it, that would have been a bittersweet ending. There would have been some some gravity, some weight to the decision that even though John's choice to kill Daenerys was correct, he was willing to make the ultimate sacrifice and to have Sansa and the rest of her, Arya and them all stand there, their family watch as John is beheaded and then the Unsullied go on their way. I think that would have put a really, it would have been dark, but it would have been a realistic twist that would have explained how peace was was finally arranged. Early in the episode, you see John speaking with Tyrion in his cell. And I caught the fact that as the light was coming in through the window, you see John's outfit. He is wearing that sort of quilted doublet and his hair is is back. His silhouette looks strikingly like Ned Stark's on the day that he was executed. And I thought that was absolutely foreshadowing. It would have been poignant, poetic, dark, moving to see him go out in the same way, truly Ned Stark's son, if not by blood, then at least by nature. Yeah, and not that he's marched out there, but he willingly goes out there. He takes it. He makes the choice that it's not Ned being beheaded. It's John laying down his life for the good of the realm and for the good of his family. And for justice to the Unsullied. I appreciate that Game of Thrones gave the Unsullied that heartwarming farewell. 
I thought it was beautiful that they sent them to defend the peaceful people of Noth in Masande's memory. But these guys were straight up robbed. I don't care if it was the right thing to do. John murdered a monarch with a claim to the throne. Her last friend and first in command of her armies doesn't kill him on the spot. So I think, Big D, you're right. That that idea of seeing John's confession would have helped. Because what we saw on screen was these rich lords of Westeros all but laughing at Grey Worm when he goes to them for justice. And this brave force that traveled thousands of miles from their homeland, they have nothing to show for it but their freedom, I guess. They're like offered lands and a house for their troubles, but that's not justice. No, and let's flip this around, right? Let's pretend that the Starks... They offered, hey, you know what, Joffrey, we're going to let him take the black. He's going to go live the rest of his life in peace up there. Do you picture Rob being okay with that? Do you think any of the Starks would have been like, yeah, that's great. You can go up there. Don't worry that you beheaded our father. No chance. Listener Dave from Tampa wrote in, and he said, the showrunners left it up to our imagination as to how John was captured. But I would have liked to see those scenes with John and Grey Worm after Daenerys' death. Grey Worm seemed pretty pumped up about executing Lannister soldiers the last time we saw him before he brings Tyrion to his sentencing as a bargaining chip. So do you really think Grey Worm would just calmly arrest John after he kills Daenerys? It seemed like there was a power vacuum after Daenerys died. And Grey Worm and the Unsullied just kept hold of King's Landing, but then had no experience running a city or didn't know who to put in charge. It felt like we were missing some scenes in that last episode with Grey Worm and the Unsullied that would have provided more connective tissue to this meeting in which Bran is elected as the king. Also, Dave writes, I think it would have been more believable if Jon was at least roughed up a bit by the Unsullied while he was held prisoner. So moving from the Unsullied, another force that came across the Narrow Sea was the Dothraki. And the Dothraki in this episode were reduced to like, they, they basically made him that weird guy at the back of a music festival who's just like, woo, you know, just back there hanging out. No speaking lines, no ending their story. And I realize that there's not room for everyone in the finale. But when your episode centers on the murder of a people's leader, you would think that people's reaction to that murder is relevant and worthwhile to capture. I'm guessing they just took off pillaging across the land. Maybe they were put down. It's not like they could just ride their horses home. Like, they're kind of fucked. Yeah, the horses don't like the water. But they're not only just in the background hooting and hollering. They've somehow been converted to a police force. They call them the screamers. They're nomads. And now they've been converted to a police force. It just seems a bit odd. And I don't know if it's appropriate that they just wiped out the Dothraki culture. But they seem to have, for lack of a better word, domesticated them. They've changed them to the Westerosi lifestyle. Yeah, it's the HBO spinoff we really didn't want, like Dothraki PD. (laughs) Everything ends in an execution. I say we slit his throat. We cannot do that. I say we rape him. Yes. Then we slit his throat. We cannot do that, Carl. They just cut your hair off. Yes, we can. Haircuts all around. (laughs) Uh, Next up, we have uh, Brienne's farewell. And this one has met some really mixed reactions from the audience. At first, I was horrified that she was used as this vehicle to just redeem Jamie in the White Book or the Book of the Brothers. But upon further reflection, I've had a day to think about it, and this makes sense for Brienne. It reinforces the fact that this night is better than most people in Westeros. Her heart is pure. She understands Jamie failed himself. She understands Jamie failed her but she remembers him for the good in his heart. Nothing that she wrote down in that book was false, but she saw the positive in every decision that he made. 
And it really, for me, cemented the fact that as a person who thinks that Jamie Lannister was bad, that you know what? There was a lot that he did in this story overall that was good. Do you know they don't even they don't even teach cursive in school anymore? Law schools? Yeah, I did know that. This is just lost talent. You know, if, if this was today, she wouldn't be able to write in the book. <laughs> it's true. Well, they, just, they certainly don't teach calligraphy. It was beautiful. I would have butchered it. I would have written all over the lines. But the ink was wet. As soon as she closes that book, it's going to look like a Rorschach test. It's just going to be a big blob. Unless the paper is super thirsty. Oh, Brienne's thirsty. Another character that we said farewell to in a grand way was Drogon. It's tempting to complain about TV, starting out with this line. Oh, so now you're telling me that, and then fill in the blank, right? But viewers should stop themselves right there. And it's something I've been doing this this season, and really since American Gods. Stop yourself there and say, instead of, oh, so now you're telling me, say, yes, now they are telling me. And then look for evidence that contradicts or reinforces that information. So an example would be, oh, so now you're telling me that Drogon is more than just a beast and he understands the Iron Throne and he understands it needs to be destroyed. Yes. So instead of interpreting this as a bullshit scene where a dragon suddenly gets super smart, look at it as the scene where we discover that Drogon understood everything the whole time. And this then explains the way he looked at John during the weird waterfall makeout. And it implies that Drogon must actually live with the massacre of people at King's Landing, which begs the question, does a dragon see humans as people? Drogon flying away with Daenerys' body is a fitting farewell for two creatures who weren't meant for Westeros. I thought it was, in hindsight, quite beautiful. What were we expecting him to do? There's no way he's going to leave her body there. No, I want to take a different approach here, right? People complain about the writing, about the the compacted plots, and just about the character arcs. Can we all agree that the dragons on this show look absolutely phenomenal? Let's go back. Do you remember the first time we saw a grown dragon on screen? It was season five, episode nine. It was when there was the fighting pits of Marine. There was a massacre. The Sons of the Harpy tried to kill Daenerys. And Drogon comes in, and it looked comical. When Daenerys climbs on top, it looked like a rubber dragon, like she was riding a Sibian. It looked, it just looked, it looked bad. <laughs> <God. okay? laughs> the dragon in this episode, it's a living, breathing thing. So we can complain about the people who are working on the show, but don't ever, ever question the special effects. This was visually stunning. Yeah, Drogon actually, as I said on the Instacast, elicited emotion from me. They 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 humanized this creature uh, just in the way that he uh, covers over uh, Daenerys and Jorah's bodies uh, after, at the Long Night. I mean, they've they've really made a character uh, out of this one remaining dragon, uh, and we wish him well. Mm-hmm. And finally, we get to Tyrion's farewell. And Big D, you said it on the Instacast. Peter Dinklage carried this episode. He's come so far from his days on Niptuck, and there's really not much you can improve about Tyrion's farewell episode. I thought it was near perfect for him. He was born for the small council. I absolutely love the way he arranged those chairs uh, before the counselors arrived. And if you didn't catch it, that was a callback to season three, episode three. In that episode, you've got Tywin Lannister sitting at the head of the table and uh, Lord Varys and Cersei and everybody else come to the table. They take their seats. This is the old small council. And Tyrion slowly drags that chair over into his his spot, slides it over. And, you know, 
and and he and he puts himself in the seat opposite Tywin Lannister, which if you don't understand is a power move. So basically, when you're sitting at a table, the head of the table is number one, and then you have what's called the flanking positions, which are to his right and left. That's actually not as powerful as the position across the table from him, which is like the number two position. So Tyrion is moving in there. Everything Tyrion does in this finale feels believable to me. The fact that he can sell this stuff is amazing, even down to the improbability of being this condemned man in front of the tribunal and going from prisoner to pontificator and turning it from a trial into a king's boot. Like he wins the whole group over. And it's, you realize it's ridiculous, but at the same time, he sells that shit. And giving Tyrion the lion's share of this episode's significant moments was a wise choice. And I felt was the only way to properly say goodbye to the series. I recommend that everybody go back and, and watch the premiere episode of season one. It's striking the the acting chops that the cast had. They were you know relatively unknowns, but Peter Dinklage specifically, he was raw. He was not that good. It's a striking distance in this finale. It's the little nuance. It's when he's breaking down. Some people hate the uncovering of Jamie and, and Cersei's corpses. His lip is quivering. His hands are shaking. The subtle acting that he does, I think it's a masterclass. And I will be surprised if he's not up for an Emmy and doesn't win it this year because that performance single-handedly saved, I feel, the finale of this show. Without him, there wouldn't be people saying, this is good, this is bad, this is... It would have been a universal disaster if he didn't, I mean, God forbid, get him a chiropractor. He is carrying the show on his shoulders. One thing I'm proud of the audience for doing this year is despite complaints about the writing, about the production, about the pacing and all that stuff, very few people are saying anything about the cast because everybody in this cast is killing it. They're all taking what they're given to work with and really doing a spectacular job of it. And I'm proud of people for recognizing that, that people aren't saying, oh, Lena Headey is awful as Cersei, or Peter Dinklage is awful as Tyrion, or Kit Harington is awful as Jon Snow. Everybody is doing a fantastic job of making these characters believable in some pretty unbelievable settings. And also remember the sacrifices that these actors were willing to make. Uh, you know, for the last couple of years, this was a cycle of film a year, production a year, film a year, production a year. They've been going at this for nine years continuously. As an actor, I think one of the one of the things that keeps you going is new projects, trying new things. That they got all of these actors to willingly put their careers basically on hold to play these one character and to maybe risk that one big breakout movie. All of the characters were willing to put everything secondary, put on the back burners. And I think for that we have to we have to give them the credit they deserve. And without that dedication, you would have had, you know, besides Dario Naharis, we, we didn't have any major swaps. Everybody stayed and they they hit it out of the park from day one from casting. And that's what they have to do for any prequels going forward. You have to nail the casting, not only for where we are today, but where a show will be in 10 years. And that will differentiate whether or not the prequels make it or whether or not they become you know, something that just is another show on HBO. Kid Harrington did make that piece of shit called Pompeii. He also did that tennis movie on HBO, Seven Days in Hell. <laughs> that was actually pretty good. That was pretty funny. So now that we've put all of our characters, you know, out to pasture, they're they're now they're all on their own trajectories. I call back to uh, the conversation between Tyrion and John in the cell, where 
John says, did I do the right thing? Tyrion says, check back in 10 years and I'll let you know. So what I want to do is I'm going to pose to you the question. We're going to fast forward 10 years into Bran's new leadership in the Six Kingdoms. In 10 years, if you just popped in, what do you think the situation would look like? I think in 10 years, we're going to be okay. I would estimate that there's going to be peace for at least a generation. If all the kingdoms have seen the Night King, that peace probably would have lasted longer, but they didn't. So the lords and ladies left alive in Westeros, thankfully, all represent a softer echelon of leaders. So remember, a generation ago, or before this War of the Five Kings, you had deadly and dark nobility, Stannis, Renly, Cersei, Jamie, Tywin, Ramsey, Roose Bolton, Walder Frey, the Mountain, Littlefinger, Khal Drogo, Euron Greyjoy, Balon Greyjoy. The list goes on and on, right? These were killers. These were people who were fierce and unrelenting. And I think that this newer uh, group that we saw at the King's Moot is a little softer than that, a little younger, perhaps a little more naive. And I think that that could bode well for at least, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 years. Uh, but eventually, all good things must end. Uh, so as usual, I'm going to take a dark turn in this. Uh, how long did it take Gene after the long night ended and then they started having the funeral feast, essentially? How long did it take before people started conniving and started backstabbing and planning? Not long. Not long. A couple hours. A couple hours and a couple drinks. So I think it's naive to think that people will stop playing the game. Edmure, as pathetic as he is, he actually had the balls to stand up and be like, hey, uh, you know, I'm the I'm the uh, the the veteran of two wars. He's a clown. So it's not going to take that long before the next little finger pops up somewhere in the backgrounds. Maybe the Iron Islands, maybe Yara starts clamoring for independence. You're going to have somebody looking to usurp Bran who could be viewed as weak throughout the kingdom. You're calling them Bran the Broken. That doesn't exactly instill fear in anybody. You could think maybe you could overthrow him. But there's also a darker potential for Bran that I think is a realistic threat. And it's the proverbial saying that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. So much like Daenerys, who believed her destiny was justified, that she was going to build a, a, an Eden, a utopia. So killing thousands of people made sense. Bran, if he remains in control, he's going to continue to consolidate power. He's going to use his green sight, much as he's doing, to try to find where Drogon is. He's going to identify threats. And the natural thing for Bran to do would be to manipulate events to guarantee that there's a desirable outcome. And he can justify it that he's doing what's right for the realm. But in the end, we could be living in a Westeros that's far worse off than under Cersei, where there's only an illusion of free will, that Bran is actually choosing from the possible outcomes and then artificially manipulating them to create a situation that benefits Bran and in his eyes, the realm as a whole. So you're looking at it from the perspective of a centralization of power, which led me to actually just think about the opposite of that. So many houses have been wiped out. There's power vacuums all over the land. And what we haven't seen in any of this is you have a populace that was just decimated by a dragon. And now that dragon is gone. So I'm interested in what the people think of all this. We never really saw that aspect other than these lords laughing at the notion of democracy. In a weakened state, I could see some of these houses falling to mobs. I could see there be civil unrest and new powers emerge out of that. Warlords, barbarians, you know, there's not 
the power structure or the governmental structure to keep things in check right now. And remember, as we discussed uh, previously on the podcast, the feudal system largely emerged as a form of protection against those sorts of raiders. So things like the old ways among the Iron Islands could take hold again, and you could have absolute butchery on your hands. But beyond all of our predictions and all the ways this story can go after the finale, we do have this terminus, this final point in the series where the story ends for us. Like it or not, season eight happened. And we're left to wonder if the finale did its job. So episode six was meant to bring everything to the close. And as we, I was thinking about it, I was like, did this help write the ship overall for the series? Or did it drive Game of Thrones deeper into the ground for people who didn't like it? And I think that argument can go both ways. So Big D, I think you and I can agree at least that the Iron Throne as a finale was needed after episode five. We couldn't end there. You couldn't have Daenerys torch everything and the end. So we needed to see the toll of Daenerys' attack. We needed to hear from her. We needed to know how our favorite characters reacted to what she did. And viewers needed a way to say goodbye after a decade-long emotional roller coaster. So in that sense, I'd say the episode definitely helped round out season eight and was a positive. This finale and this final season, as much as right now, there's no universal consensus. A lot of people like it. A lot of people hate it. Uh, I think it's close enough. As time passes, people will start to forget about the the problems of season seven and eight and start to remember the overall nine years that the eight seasons as a cohesive, if you view it as a group, it is groundbreaking. There might never be another time that the world as a whole is watching something at the same time as streaming movies and streaming series and bingeable content becomes the norm. How many times are we going to be sitting through 2,954 days as a collective group enjoying something? It might never happen again. So I think this finale did not do anything to destroy the first eight seasons or the first seven and a half seasons. It didn't do anything to improve it. I think that in the future, we can only hope that you will view it on the merits of this series as a whole and not just this last season because we're so close to it right now that we can't even really assess it correctly. So some viewers were waiting for this episode to correct a lot of the liberties that have been taken over the course of the season. And I said it after episode four, after episode five, I can't form a judgment until I've seen the whole thing. You started this section with the question of how will this season, will it help or hurt the series as a whole? And I think that comes down to the point that will really determine it. What happens with the books? If George comes out with the two final books that fix all of the problems, that make it work out in a logical progression, that the arcs match, that everyone's happy, that there's a resolution, then the show will look like a failure more than it does right now. That they'll say, you know what? You couldn't have waited. This is what it should have been. This is how it should have ended. If George somehow, because he's older, he's not in great health, if something happens to George that he doesn't finish the book, I think that will help elevate the series. But there's a potential right now it could go either way. Yeah, listener Tom from Chicago wrote it, and he said that this finale was a confirmation that the Double Ds are better adapters of stories than original writers, just like you said, Big D. Since going off book, the storylines have become very typical in structure and nature, and nonconformity to those rules is why people like the book-based seasons. 
And I agree with Tom. I feel like this final episode needed, above all else, to capture the spirits of seasons one through four. People would be willing to forgive all the deviation from the earlier seasons if at least in the end it went true to form again. It went back to what it started out as. If anything, I would have loved, and I know this is not an option, but if if George R. R. Martin could have written at least this last episode, as opposed to having the double D's write and direct it, uh, maybe we could have gotten to that. Yeah, and for those who don't know, George used to work with Benioff and Weiss to write some of the episodes. Some of the best episodes in the series history were written by George. He was proactively involved with the production of the show. He wrote Blackwater. He wrote The Bear and the Maiden Fair. He wrote The Lion and the Rose, where Joffrey is killed. I think it would have been beneficial to everyone involved if they could have mended whatever fences have been broken. If George had said, you know what, I'm going to come in, I'm going to help land the ship instead of keeping his distance, because it seemed like there was that adversarial role that didn't help come up with a cohesive ending. I would have liked them to put their differences aside and say, hey, let's work together. Let's land this together instead of each one trying to cover their own ass. So after this finale... The downloads and subscriptions to the podcast have been fantastic. Unfortunately, we are winding things down, but we're not done yet. We have several episodes coming up. And if you heard anything on this podcast that caught your ear, if you want to write in and tell us how your rewrite would have been better, uh, please do it. Host at shoutontv.com. And do not stop listening because after this, we still have the small council coming up on Friday, plus three more episodes after that where we do some season specials. Uh, We're going to do a season recap. Our Thorny Awards, which are the best of the season and best of the series, which we'll be posting online soon. And of course, a final small council where we wrap up all of our ideas. Uh, But for now, that concludes this week's episode of Shad on TV, Game of Thrones. Be sure to follow us on social media and share with a friend. We're on Twitter, Snapchat, and Instagram at Shad on TV. On Facebook, search for Shad on TV Podcasts. The website is shadontv.com. If you'd like to email us, again, that's host at shadontv.com for the small council. Please get those in by 5 p.m. Eastern on Wednesday so we can consider your email for the podcast. If you'd like to call in a voicemail for the small council, that's 914-719-SHAT. Where everywhere fine podcasts can be found, including iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Pandora, Spotify, and YouTube. Be sure to subscribe. And if you stop by iTunes, please leave a review that helps the podcast grow. Also, if you'd like to help out with the podcast costs, you can contribute through PayPal, Venmo, or Amazon at shoutontv.com slash PayPal slash Venmo or slash Amazon. And if you'd like to take a survey to help us find out what kind of sponsors are right for you, uh, please go to shoutontv.com slash survey. It only takes a few minutes and we greatly appreciate it. And finally, while you're waiting for our Shadow TV episodes to be released, we strongly suggest and highly recommend going to shatthemovies.com and subscribing to our 80s and 90s movies podcast. It is a lot of fun. Uh, we just released Point Break this week, and it's had phenomenal reception from a lot of people who hadn't heard Shat the Movies before. If you're not an 80s and 90s movies fan, that's fine. You still get to hang out with us and have a good time. So check that all out at shotthemovies.com. On behalf of my co-hosts, Big D, Dick Ebert, and the King B, I'm Gene Lyons. Be sure to join us Friday for the Game of Thrones Small Council Listener Mail Edition. Go team cart. Oh, fuck that one.